Welcome to Songwriter Trysts, an intimate podcast that is connecting songwriters from all over the world. I'm singer-songwriter Ray Lee. Music saved my life and I want to talk to other songwriters about the power of songwriting, talk about their journey and how they got to where they are today. This is a safe space to share stories, lessons and emotions, all the great things that build an amazing song. To support the podcast and follow our journey, you can find us on songwritertrysts.com. Welcome to a songwriter tryst with Jimmy Watts. Hi. How you doing? I am swell and yourself? I'm good. So I start every podcast by getting you, in your own words, tell us a little bit about who you are and where you come from. So my name's Jimmy. I grew up in Toowoomba and that's where I come from. Who I am is, well, I used to be a touring musician for about 12 years, playing lots of little pubs and... Little festivals and all that sort of stuff. Little festivals, little <laughs> folk festivals and blues festivals and that okay. sort of thing. Yeah. I didn't break into the, the good festivals. Like the, the blues fest. I didn't get to the to the big ones, no. Yeah. I didn't hit the big time. One day. <laughs> I feel like now's right, now's the time for like a nearly 40-year-old white guy yeah. to really, uh, my I... voice hasn't been heard <laughs> in the music industry and I feel like it's time. <laughs> That's like that's segregating yourself into like a small little box. You're so much more than just a forty year old white guy. Well, <laughs> no, that's that's no, quite a are. good box. <laughs> it's it's a starting point. It's a starting point. I'm just a pretty white female then, if you put me in a box. But that is, I'm so much more than that. Although I mean, you have you might have depth. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't assume the same about myself. Oh really? All right. Well, let's let's see how deep we can go. <laughs> oh, good. Tell me about songwriting and music. How did that start for you? Where did it start? In school, I think in grade eight, we had mandatory music. Mm-hmm. I was playing. I got. I don't know why, but I got given the trombone, and Mr. The brass. I guess he was brass and woodwind teacher. Anyway, he had like. I was terrible. I think I started on trumpet, actually. My lips were too big. They said you can't hit the high notes. I think so because the mouthpiece is a lot smaller on the trumpet. Just get a bigger mouthpiece. I don't know. I could have just sucked. I don't know. (laughs) So then they gave me a trombone after a couple of weeks because they were like, you'll never be a trumpet player. Wow. So then I was playing the trombone for a few months, but the music teacher, there was like some like weird sexual assault thing that had happened in one of the high schools in town. Oh, that old story. Yeah, yeah. And so he didn't want to do one-on-one sessions in like a closed room, a private room in the music building because I guess... It opens up scandal. So he wanted to do uh, lessons outside (laughs) during lunchtime. (laughs) (laughs) That's way more practical. And he also had like... He didn't know what the word wanker meant or he was like a horrible human being and kept calling kids wankers. So whenever you'd make oh. a mistake, he'd be like, not really? like that, you wanker. <laughs> what? Your teacher said that to you? Yeah. So <laughs> after a little bit of like being oh like chastised and called a wanker <laughs> while you're trying to do a music lesson terribly in yeah. like the lunch break outside while was, other students. Was Toowoomba just continue. suffering to find good music teachers? Or I'm, sure he was, I'm sure he was lovely. I'm sure I'm remembering it, you know, incorrectly. <laughs> and I guess I should say allegedly to all of this. <laughs> but should I take out his name? Because I think you said his name earlier. I'll just put a beep over it. So it's sure. Not. <laughs> Whatever you got to do. Okay. <laughs> um, 
So <laughs> that was how I started playing okay. music. And then, not surprisingly, I hung up my trombone boots and then started playing a guitar because oh, that was cool. Well, you can't eat anything. Everything's a poison. It's a mystery. still alive. They're listening on your telephone. Listen to everything you own. Trying to sell you something you don't need. They got things in each other's pockets. One don't get to the other's gotcha. Ain't no pleasure in the I gotta get me off that grid. How did, like, where did the guitar come from then? Was that school as well or was that outside of school? I think my friend Ozzy, his name's Ozzy, he was, I think he had a guitar from his dad or something and, and my dad had a guitar lying around. So we mucked around. Mm. The first song I wrote was about masturbating. It was, and it's probably the best <laughs> song I've ever written. Yeah, okay. Um, the first one. About yeah. masturbation was your yeah. best song. Well, in terms of like audience feedback, I guess I was really playing to my, you know, 14-year-old crowd yep. at that point. Artist, this is you're playing your authentic self and a 14-year-old boy writing a song about masturbation. That's actually quite vulnerable and powerful in a weird and unique way. I think you're giving uh, a lot of credit there. <laughs> That's depth. <laughs> I'm trying to find depth here. <laughs> yeah, you got to just keep digging. I think that the chorus to that was, I love myself, I love me because I'm easy, which was, I guess, true. Yeah, so I think from there, then, yeah, from there, I, would, I think I started writing slightly less okay. humorous songs for a while. Tried to use music as a genuine form of self-expression and I guess 15 years later realized that I think I just got cynical <laughs> and then I yeah. started writing funny songs about masturbating again right <laughs> and I've been enjoying that for the last couple of years hey you're talking to someone whose best song so far is a comedy song about boobs so I mean I get it but I think people like a laugh you know it's it's entertaining purely entertaining I feel like given the state of the world it's a pleasant reprieve yeah from uh <laughs> sad songs about the state of the world or yeah. from about Love songs mm. or sappy, super, super earnest. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I think really I'm just a cynical old asshole who. Why did you become so cynical? Like what's happened that you feel made you really cynical? I, I guess. Is this the therapy segment? <laughs> no, I'm just curious. I mean, because something, there's, there's always something that, you know, is a turning point that impacts us and changes the way we see the world. Yeah, I think I went through a lot of trauma as a kid, a lot of grief, and that's just sort of compounded into my teens and 20s. And it's probably only been, yeah, since my sort of early 30s that, yeah, I've started some therapy and really started to probably become more self-aware about, you know, patterns that emerge from those type of, you know, childhood traumas and that sort of stuff. So mm -hmm. it's, I think, yeah, at some point within all that, I think in my 20s, yeah, like I grew up in like a weird cult and then the they were like a, just a very right-wingy, like so I grew up in Toowoomba. Toowoomba is like the, in case you don't know what you're listening to. Well, my uncle know. lives in Toowoomba but, um, and I've yeah. been through there but my dad's from Jindawi which is like another few hours further out. Yeah, Toowoomba's like this weird hub of like uber-religious, very, not, not like spiritual like the Northern Rivers. It's yeah. more just like Christian-based right-wing very, in, I don't know, 
My parents were pastors. It's called the Pentecostal Church. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. So they were very similar to the Pentecostal, I think. And I think when I was – so I went to like their primary cult school in right. grade one, which sort of didn't follow the curriculum of the state. Regular state school, they yeah. Just, yeah, we had like little voting booths. <laughs> type desks around the room, mm. around the outside of the room, followed some workbooks, did a lot of marching, played a lot of recorder. Actually, yes. that was probably oh my, my first. I don't understand game. that at all, why why people think giving children recorders <laughs> is smart. Can you imagine being those teachers? <laughs> Can you imagine being the parents? <laughs> yeah, true, yeah. I've got to practice my recorder. Please don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. So, so that the was... school and the recorders, it was very different and, and cultish. Yeah, and then I think the cults got like disseminated, like disbanded after grade or while I was in grade one. I'm not sure. I'm not too sure. I think like the federal police arrested the leader who was like really? embezzling a lot of money. Yeah, like my parents really. <laughs> yeah, they like they sold a house and gave that all to them and we went and lived at Bible, quote unquote Bible college, <laughs> which I think was like an old school dormitory oh, <laughs> for gosh. quite a while. Anyway, so and then they just reformed after they sort of had the, the leader had, left they just reformed as you know the same the same people with a slightly different name and the last guy was a test of our faith um, oh, no. and sort of kept a lot of the things but I don't remember where I was going with the story well, you talked but. about like you kind of abbreviated a very common life story of child abuse or neglect or trauma then you know that impact on teenagehood, and then now getting to your third, more well, getting to thirties, where you actually felt like you started to get therapy. Okay, well I'll just say something <laughs> insensitive now, and you can cut back into it. <laughs> no, but you, you were talking about that journey for yourself, and, and it's, it went back to that your cult upbringing and how that influenced, you know, where you for you, like, did that influence your connection to music? Yeah, obviously that sort of you know environmental impact on your on your psyche no doubt influenced some sort of connection to music I think it was when yeah my family had sort of left the cult and we sort of went religion shopping for Mm -hmm. a few years trying out different different churches and it was probably when I was 14 my younger brother passed away of accidental drug overdose I guess and and then I was sort of quite quickly then just you know bounce from when you were 14 how old you said your younger brother how old was he he was 13 so he was 13 yeah you younger than me and was it medicinal drugs or no it was just like some mates at school experimenting and yeah just an experiment that triggered like a, a heart arrhythmia and yeah so i think yeah then i bounced from not being you know i guess the whole family kind of bounced a little from or everyone sort of bounced differently, but I definitely yeah. bounced towards atheism for a few years and then spent, you know, till I was about 19 doing a lot of drugs and having a lot of fun or, you know, having a lot of fun on the outside mm-hmm. and being... Escaping the misery on the inside. Yeah, yeah. But playing, yeah, definitely, you know, playing a lot of guitar at that time. And then I was about 19 and I was kind of at that point where the decision was either like can keep doing this and really double down on having a lot of fun and probably be dead in a couple of years. But instead I ended up, you know, yeah, I went in the opposite direction and became like a, well, yeah. And then I ended up at 19 hooking up with a much older sort of spiritual guru. Yeah. Well, ended up in like a incredibly 
weird relationship for like 12 years. So you're not in that relationship anymore? No, no. But in that time, like I didn't drink, didn't uh, didn't do any drugs, was very, you know, like hippie, spiritual. Is this where the the African drums came in? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Lots of cultural appropriation, just very, you know, a very conceited way of trying to deal with trauma and grief by, I guess, you know, from my experience going from like, yeah, right-wing religion, Christianity, it was like the the opposite spectrum to that. Mm. I was like, oh, and then this is kind of different. Like your Maybe. witchcraft and spirituality and everything yeah, all the nonsense, yeah. yeah, all the crystals, yeah, all the bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> wow, but you've explored, like this is cool. Yeah, like I'm a, <laughs> technically a Reiki master. <laughs> I actually, I've, I've, I know what Reiki is and I did massage therapy in another life. Yeah. But I kind of, I've never had it and I don't really understand it. Can you explain Reiki in like, in like two seconds? <laughs> it's like the manipulation of quote unquote energies. Yeah. Using various symbolism from the Orient. So it's extra mystical. Yeah. It's. it's it's uh, <coughs> Whereas like, I, like, I like touch, um, right? So that's why I'm like, why would I pay someone to lay on a table and then not touch me? Yeah. I'm like, touch me. <laughs> I want to be touched. Yeah. So remedial massage is my thing. But anyway. But needless to say, I haven't been a, a practicing Reiki master. <laughs> <laughs> just, this is gold though. <laughs> uh, it's just so hard to like even just look back at how like insanely embarrassing I even think this, this is, is like a placebo effect. Even like religion or Reiki or whatever. It's like for some people... They just need something to believe in and they need something to make them feel like they're doing something about whatever it is they need to do about it. And if that's all they can do and it makes them feel good yeah, for sure. it, you know, yeah. it's like the crystals and stuff. Might make you feel better for a little bit. I'll try it. Yeah. No, it's definitely <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, you're in just, or, you know, I was in just like, you know, a state of survival mode and, yeah, and, and yeah whatever, whatever bullshit was going to make staying alive seem, seem worth it was the... Do you struggle a lot with mental health and like do you have those moments where you just, you lose that hope of what's the point? Yeah. So yeah, I guess my family has a lot of mental health issues within it and yeah, growing up like mum was bipolar, Mm -hmm. he's bipolar and then yeah, obviously after after my brother died that sort of exacerbated a lot of her Mm. mental health issues And, and I guess she's of that generation where... It's, you know, it's not a, an openly discussed about thing. It's a big taboo, shameful topic that you don't try and address or manage. You just yeah. try and sweep it under the carpet, which obviously just makes it all worse. Did you have like, because my parents being pastors, they were like, they had to be the best Christians, right, off the church. And it was like, if you're unhappy, you don't have enough faith. Or like, there was kind of like this mentality of like, if you have depression or you're not dealing with something very well mentally, then you're a sinner. Yeah, and, and so the therefore, thoughts. therefore, you wouldn't tell anyone. <laughs> and I was like, "That's like, yeah, it's just, that's bullshit. Like, stuff happens, and we need to talk about it. That's what. That's why. That's actually the one thing I think Catholics got right is having confessionals, a place where people can go and just let it out and not be judged by what they're saying, and just have a space to. Bleh. I'm not sure I would put. That is uh, Catholics got it right. <laughs> no, no, uh, the one part, the one, the one small thing the Catholics got right was allowing people to have confession. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I feel like that was often used then by the 
the the preacher, the priest as a as a means to manipulate because they then Absolutely. know your yeah. deepest, darkest secrets, especially with yeah. But but yeah, obviously, you know. <laughs> In theory, we should be able to share without judgment. Mm. I, I agree with that sentiment. In theory, in theory <laughs> I believe we should be able to share with each other without judgment. It's not the truth. It doesn't happen and it's bullshit and that's why we all need therapists who we pay to sign a piece of paper saying they won't tell anyone. But, <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah. Okay, way off topic. I, I don't remember what we were talking about. <laughs> um, what were we talking about? We were talking about music and your songwriting and then your journey and you, you got into this relationship with the last about 12 years was crystals and stuff and now you're not in that relationship. What happened after this relationship? How did you get out of that relationship? What was I think the- so I think on a, yeah, I, I was done after a couple of years with that but then, yeah, she was much older than me. There was a lot of, I guess, that dynamic of, being, you know, someone who's in their 40s dating someone who's a teenager who's had like a very traumatic yeah, upbringing. There's a lot of like you know power dynamic there that isn't isn't ideal. And, and then she became very ill, and I ended up sort of taking more of a carer role in that relationship wow. for for yeah at least the last half of it. And that was quite uh, how do you say it was just quite a toxic, abusive type of scenario. And yeah, I think I was probably thirty thirty one before I was yeah. Able to took me like two years to create an exit strategy and got out of that. And well done, yeah. Thank you. (laughs) I'm so brave. Power. (laughs) Um, And then, yeah, she's actually since passed away about 18 months ago. Yeah. Did that impact you? Yeah, actually, that was quite a strange six. Yeah, like learning from learning about her passing away to then. Realizing that it had actually been like she several months and none of her friends or family had thought to contact me. Um, yeah, and then and then yeah, just like it was it was a good six months of sort of reliving a lot of that, a lot of the strange odd things that, that had happened in that relationship. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, we and you were doing music throughout that relationship, or did it get put to the side because of everything that was going on? No, that was the main time that I was touring. Was through that was. Yeah. It was my escape and my means of, yeah, I was very happy to be spending six to nine months. Oh, so you, when you were touring, you were yeah. away from that relationship? For some of it. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was a good escape, yeah. yeah. Touring is a good escape. It is. It's quite, it's quite good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've got the energy Don't tell my husband nowadays. I think that. But <laughs> I think he knows. <laughs> Maybe knows. I think he's probably got a pretty good idea. I got, he's in Townsville at the moment. He can't talk. He works in Townsville right, okay. every month. So. That's <laughs> also taking turn with the kids. <laughs> to his version of touring. It is. It yeah. is. Yeah. Although I assume he doesn't get like a round of applause every five minutes at his job. No, but I think they do like him a lot. Like I think he gets lots of pats on the back. More than you get when you're parenting. And probably more than I should give him more pats on the back because he's a very good dad. I was more, yeah. I think like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, that's one thing about music that I like or about performing. Yeah, you like the applause. Yeah, I think when I was like six or seven, we had like uh, we, like some weird Christian record that was like a live concert, and mm-hmm. there was a heap of like applause in this, like in this live in the recording. recording. Yeah. yeah, and like I liked the applause element. That. 
more than any other element of the songs on that. Oh, really? Well, like, I do that a lot in those Christian. Like, I've, I had a few of those growing up, yeah. and it's always like, ah, and you hear the cheering, and yeah, there's big, big applause. I think, yeah, I really enjoyed that part. But maybe that was just because the music was so shit. Maybe <laughs> if we had better music when I was growing up, maybe I'd be like. <laughs> See, I wasn't even allowed to listen to secular music growing up. Right. Like, I, I would in secret and then I would rewrite the words to my favourite songs on the radio. Change and Baby to Jesus. and Like, <laughs> I've done this a few times, but do you know like my milkshakes brings all the boys to the yard? Yeah. My Jesus brings all the peeps to the Lord and their life is better than yours. Oh, that's atrocious. So terrible. Wow. Or like Green Day. Or like, yeah. <laughs> like, I have a lot of like terribly Christianized songs. <laughs> Songs. I think that was a part of my training as a songwriter is that I was rewriting songs all the time because I wasn't allowed to, but I loved how they made me feel. I loved the melodies and <laughs> it was my excuse. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to get that out of my head. <laughs> I want to hear an album, though, of, um, of your rewritten pop songs <laughs> to be to Christian lyrics. Uh, what's that one that was like, Welcome to My Life? Who did that one? It's like, it, it was like a punk Rocky song, but I changed it. It's like, to feel loved, to feel safe, to have Jesus as your mate, to be on the edge of telling the world about the man that saved you, or do you want to know what it's like? Welcome him to your life. Oh. Yeah. So we need to take... I've got lots of them in there. <laughs> seriously. I don't know if it would do any good to the world, though, to hear these. <laughs> these. And I'd have to like, I don't even know what copyright, how that would work. <laughs> I think if it's, I think technically it'd be parody. Um, yeah, how, but I don't, how does parody work? Oh, parody, you've got a clean slate. But oh, really? I think you have a moral <laughs> or an ethical <laughs> obligation to to get some consent, I but do I don't like, think you have yeah. a legal obligation. I like um, Weird Al Yankovic. He's one of my favourites and his parodies are freaking hilarious. And I actually enjoy his parodies better than some of the original stuff. Yeah, he has that, he follows that moral... Code of asking. Does he? Okay, that's good. <laughs> but from a legal standpoint, you don't need because I feel like it's a good reason to reach you out might to someone not get, though. I feel like, like, hey, yeah. Green Day, I'm just going to do a parody of a song. What do you think? Is that all right? <laughs> Changing some of your lyrics to Jesus. <laughs> Although yeah. one of them is now spends all his money on what is it? Like alien exploration, like looking for extraterrestrial life. Oh yeah, which is cool. I think to to know that the guy who <laughs> like spending all his time screaming about being an American idiot and then. <laughs> yeah, anyway. All right. So you toured to get away. The relationship ended. She passed away. You had some reflection time. At the moment, like with the band and after that, like you stopped touring. Have you had yeah, a big so break? What's been the transition? You're still in music now. So after that relationship I was still touring for quite a while yeah. and then yeah one tour I had I was doing a lot of solo touring and then at at one point had like a 30 date string and just ended up having like this roller coaster of the best gig of my life and then the next night being like the absolute worst gig of my life and then the next night the best gig then the worst gig and it was this. Were there's actually a big difference in the way the gig was going or was it more an emotional roller coaster? Oh no it was, it was more like my internal my brain just wasn't functioning very well so I was having either a great time on stage or a horrible time and and yeah up to it decided I was going to have a break and I started therapy 
and I haven't really toured since, but I've done a lot of therapy since. <laughs> How's the therapy gone? Would uh, you recommend it? Yeah, yeah. It took me a while to find a therapist I clicked with. And That's then, a really good point. And then it took me a while to probably even feel safe enough to get any benefit out of therapy. But yeah, like it's been five, six years now and yeah, I don't know. I really appreciate you sharing that though. I think when I started I was like, awesome, I'm going to therapy now. I'm going to be be fixed in a a couple (laughs) of weeks. Oh, yeah, Um, six years later. (gasps) Yeah, I think that expectation was probably just, you know, a misinformed idea of what it it was. Mm -hmm. I think also when I was, I guess, yeah, when I was 14 after my brother died, the only therapy that (laughs) I went to after that or or grief counselling was like it was an abusive situation where the therapist, you know, like crossed a lot of lines that they shouldn't have. And, oh. and so I think from then I was like, well, therapy is bullshit because of my one experience. That's so common though. People are like, I went to therapy once and it was crap. Yeah, like, it wasn't not yeah. for me. <laughs> you, like yeah. you said, you have to shop around. You've got to find someone that you feel comfortable with. Yeah, I, and because I I guess when I started like the, and it stuck was yeah. I, I found like a quote-unquote performance psychologist who because I was like, I just did this tour, I'm performing on stage and it's like doing my head in, I can't get into the zone. Yeah, okay. I'll go to a performance psychologist and they were like, oh, no, we deal with sports people. <laughs> like, ah! <laughs> yeah, that's, like, I'd well, never heard of one for music, but that's cool. Like, yeah, no, like, <laughs> I, I guess technically we can give it a go. <laughs> I was like, no, I want to talk about my childhood grief. <laughs> and they're like, no, nah, you just need to focus on winning the race, buddy. <laughs> So, yeah, yeah, I had to shop around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's important to find the right person that fits for you and, and makes you feel safe. And that's the most important thing is having a safe space to not feel judged, be able to say whatever is on your mind and and then be able to discuss that without feeling like you can say something and then you're going to be, cu- you know, crucified. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> and, that, and that relationship life. takes a while to build. And mm-hmm. Yeah. But, yeah, so... Eight out of ten stars can recommend therapy. And Me too. Ten years. I, I feel like I need like an AA badge or something. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in the club. <laughs> yeah, I'm on the antidepressants at the moment. They definitely, yeah, definitely just give me that little uh, extra brain chemistry adjustment mm. that helps me get the energy to wash the dishes. Yeah. <laughs> and I think we all need to, you have to work out what works for you. And, yeah, that's, that's okay. Like mm. whatever... Helps you get out of bed in the morning. Yeah, I wish I could say songwriting. Sorry, back to bring it back. Let's bring it back to songwriting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Good. I wish I could say songwriting helped me get out of bed in the morning, but I think it has become a chore. Really? More. Yeah. Do you co-write much with people? No, no, I don't like people. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I've wanted to actually. I think the only co-writing I used to do is when I was seventeen. I think I moved to Melbourne and. Yeah, met a friend and we would write a few songs together and bask quite a bit. And then, but yeah, no, I haven't really done anything since. since We should totally do a co-write. Yeah, let's do a co-write. Tell me about, through everything that you've done and your experiences as a songwriter and being in a band and being in the music industry, what would you say the best advice is that you've ever been given? That I've ever been given? Mm. That's really helped you see things differently or maybe be more productive or whatever. I don't think I've 
no one's ever given you advice. <laughs> like most people tell you to quit, um, <laughs> which is really good advice. Like, it's a horrible industry. This is a cynical it's part a, of it. Yeah. Performing, being an artist is like, to be able to do it, you, in, especially in Australia, in the music industry, like, like logistically you have to come from like this place of immense privilege to be able to like, put in a couple of years of like developing and to be able to like financially afford, you know, the absolute slog that being an artist is in Australia. Mm -hmm. And I guess like when I started like playing gigs in pubs when I was like and busking like when I was 17 was out of a, a place of my capacity was like there's no way I could sit at a job for eight hours a day at a desk like I you know I was a mess of a human yeah like (laughs) I have zero executive function I you know I'm not like wasn't capable of working a normal job but Mm. I could play a little bit of guitar and make a little bit of money doing that and that was like just it was just out of like a necessity more than it was out of you know a desire to you know really explore some you know, well thought out artistic uh, vision that I had. Mm. It was just like, oh, I can make 300 bucks down at the pub on Saturday. I can't work a job. That's what I'll have to do to yeah. be able to pay rent. So that that's kind of like how I... But you, you do know. enjoy it as well. Obviously, yeah. I mean, yeah. pub gig can become a chore if you've been doing it for ever. Mm. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't but. say I enjoyed pub gigs <laughs> um, i enjoy playing music still yeah. <laughs> um, yeah but yeah i think yeah would, i didn't get into would... it as like uh that i wanted to you know that i had you know some like great artistic vision that i needed to get out i just needed to pay the rent and this yeah. was like like okay. an idiot i got into yeah. music for the money <laughs> so which yeah weirdly it didn't really work out yeah <laughs> Okay, now, if you were to meet a kid that was in a similar position of I just, you know, I cannot see myself in a paper-pushing job, I love music and I want to make money from music, I want to have a career in music, what sort of advice would you be giving them? I think nowadays uh, with the internet, like when I was 17, there was no internet mm. or it was dial-up and Napster and mm. there wasn't the you know, social media style. But, yeah, I think nowadays, like, you can just find your niche, your niche, I never know how to pronounce that, and mm. double down on it and create your community that way, which, yeah, if I was a young person, I think that's what I would try and focus on. But I think also, like, you do get a lot out of performing live and I definitely learn a lot. Touring, playing shitty pubs to bar flies, you sort of, I guess, yeah, to answer your question about what was the best <laughs> advice, it wasn't like direct advice, but it was an interview I read with Ash Grunwald who before he, you know, sort of really took off, he did, he toured around the pub scene for a decade or so. Mm. And yeah, he said something, you know, about how in Australia, like, obviously we have all these disadvantages as a music industry and, and, you know, being able to tour because there's such big distances, there's not many people that live here. But, uh, you know, one advantage that you do have as a performer is if you do hit that pub scene and learn how to win over three bar flies and turn them into fans and give them a great show, 
and be able to do that consistently, you know, over over the years, like you learn so much stagecraft, so much, so much about just engaging people that, you know, his experience was like, by the time you get to Europe and the UK to do some, to do some shows, you mm. get over there where people, you know, the other musos around you haven't had to win over Dazza and mm. at the fucking Tattersall's Hotel on a Sunday afternoon and they sort of get on stages thinking that they're they're rock stars <laughs> and like over here they'd get slaughtered at an open <laughs> mic. So like by yeah. the time you sort of go internationally with your pub rock, ex- your Aussie pub rock experience, then yeah. you have all this, yeah, this extra extra skills that you've learnt. Entertainment um, value. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which is like a whole nother craft that like I don't feel like people realise is a thing. Well, I think like, yeah, like my songwriting is shit, but I think my <laughs> performance, like, and I think like it you came can work about. On that, right? Well, I think it, oh, I should. I've worked on it, like, <laughs> seriously, just by talking to people from all over the world and songwriting and reading books and doing it. Now I look at my songs from like my EP from a year ago and I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> you oh, know? I think if you look at any yeah. of your work from, yeah, a few years ago and you're yeah. not horrifically embarrassed and think that it's terrible and something's wrong. <laughs> embarrassed. I just see I see my own growth in well, yeah, okay. ways that I could have done things better or, you know. That's probably healthier than assigning a sense of shame to it. No, <laughs> there's no shame around it. I accept that, you know, you've you got to love yourself where you're at in life. You know, you don't shame a one-year-old for not being able to walk yet or not walking very well or running. Maybe you because don't. Because they're just... I just walk around childcare and well, just pointing and laughing. <laughs> Well, it wouldn't be a very nice thing to do. You know, it's about having self-compassion. <laughs> sure. So therapy's been going really well for me. Yeah, so Sorry. I think I think I tried to make up for my terrible songwriting okay. with, you know, by focusing on the performance aspect, which okay. yeah, Your probably just would have been a lot easier to write some better songs <laughs> instead of having to put so much energy on staying to the I have I have a hack for that. Oh, what's your hack? Write with professional songwriters. <laughs> ah, the old, okay. Yeah. Now I know my competition. <laughs> All right. Yeah. If you could collaborate or co-write with anyone in the world, dead or alive, who would it be and why? If I could collaborate. Because I haven't done much like collaborative songwriting. I guess I, d- I don't really have a, a dream list. But in terms of like band members, I think Pino Palladino, the bass player. I mean, he's like a session bass player. <laughs> who's, I guess, must be in his 60s. Wow. He just kind of looks like he might fall asleep on stage, <laughs> but he's just solid okay. <laughs> as a rock. You sort of see him, like, playing for The Who and for, like, John Mayer and all these. Yeah, anyway. Right. So you just need a few grand and you could hire him for a show. For, like, half an hour. And yeah, <laughs> I'd be happy. Well, even <laughs> if you just hired him for, a, a, you know, half an hour, a few thousand dollars, get him to play a, a line on one of your songs and then you can put him in the press release and you'd be like... Oh, I think I'd just like, yeah, just play a bass solo for half an hour. <laughs> and I'd just watch him like almost gently fall asleep while he bangs out incredible riffs. <laughs> and maybe I think Carter Beaufort, the drummer for Dave Matthews Band, mm-hmm. he plays like a bunch of that like offbeat crazy stuff. I really enjoy that. That's... As influences because you have like a really cool, unique voice... 
do you have like an inspiration or someone that you go like you either feel like you sound like or you just love their vibe and you feel like it's influenced the way that you perform and sing? Uh, or is it just like you raw Jimmy Watts? Nah, definitely like always enjoyed Tom Waits's, you know, gravelly smoke-filled insanity. And I think when I was a smoker that sort of came quite easily. Yeah. And yeah, I haven't smoked for a couple of years now and I – have noticed. Well, done. well yeah, <laughs> I, I, yeah. I can't definitely can't get as deep or as nah, yeah. I'd have to attempt to try and get a bit gravelly. Feels a bit more forced than it yeah. was, but yeah. Was, I've, I've never considered myself a singer. Sort of just mumble and shout. And, You're definitely a singer. Like know. you have you have incredible character in your voice that I think a lot of people as artists and singers struggle to find. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, I mean, Tom Waits is definitely a good, like I can see the inspiration there. But like at the same time you don't sound like him. Well, I'm trying to. So that hurts. Oh, <laughs> no. Not really? But <laughs> well, you can't yeah. sound like, I mean, I mean. So, okay, for a long time I didn't think I could sing. That's one of the reasons I had a lot of insecurity around my voice because I was like I don't sound like anyone on radio. You know, I don't have a typical pop, powerful ballad voice trained classically, whatever. Hmm. Like it's just, it's just this soft... I worshipped in church kind of voice and so I just didn't sing in public for a very long time and then one day my dad told me that I have the voice that God gave me and that's exactly mm. what I need. And I was like, I don't know, a part of me just went, yeah, this is just my voice and I can't do anything about it. I can't get like a voice box transplant. I've just got to be you happy probably with can what I have. Well, yeah, it's probably expensive. I like my voice. It's different. And actually I like realizing it's it, very lovely. Thank you. But realizing now that it's like actually this it's like, you know, when you just mm. oh, I wish I was Beyonce. I don't actually wish I was Beyonce. I'm quite happy to just be me. And that I think is probably something that just comes with age. But Yeah, I think there's definitely psychological elements of finding your voice mm. that where, you know, you can find some level of authenticity within yourself mm. I think yeah I always was just trying to sound like a grumbly old bluesman singing in like an American accent and you know that was you know not a well thought out thing that I was <laughs> like oh this is how I want to represent myself that yeah. was just you know just what good? happened but I think yeah in the last couple of years I've noticed some of the songs I've been writing are like more Australian accent I'm not trying to emulate does it feel oh, more authentic it, for you? It does, like, but I can still, you know, when, like, because nothing's original. You're always just copying things that you're influenced by. So, like. Still like, like an artist. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> I was still, like, even though I'm singing more in my own voice and my own accent, I still, like, am, you know, seeing the, you know, oh, you sound like, you know, Will from the Smith Street band or so-and-so. And, mm. So there's still those, you know, imposter syndrome thoughts associated with it. But it yeah. does, you know, I guess it's probably more just forced upon me because I'm not smoking and I can't grumble anymore can't as much as I used to. So, <laughs> so now I'm just going to sound like an orca. <laughs> um, yeah. But I forgot what we were talking about. That's all right. We're just talking about your influences and how, okay. how it all works and because you're talking about people that you'd love to have in your band and people that inspire you. Tom Waits. Oh, my gosh. Amazing. So... This is the part of where I'm going to put all your links and stuff like that so people can go find you and your music and YouTube and stuff. Oh, it's plug time. Are it's plug rapping? time. 
It's oh, plug time. I've got so much more trauma to talk about. <laughs> we'll have to come back for another session. Next okay. one will be $160 per hour. Um, I'll get a <laughs> Medicare rebate. <laughs> I don't know if I can claim that. I'm not, I'm not a qualified therapist. I'm qualified via experience. <laughs> I'd love to see that on your Medicare. Like <laughs> <laughs> you can go to an acupuncturist, a, a massage therapist, a therapist or a podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know my mum, she's a nurse, but she's been a nurse for 50 years. And she used to say that once she turned, uh, she'd been doing nursing for 40 years, she's like, I might as well be a bloody doctor because... She's been doing it for that long. She feels like she knows as much as a doctor. She clearly doesn't. Don't tell her I told you that. But I feel like that's kind of once you've done 10 years of therapy and you've, you've dived into such deep parts of yourself, you kind of feel like you're almost qualified to be a therapist because you've been through so much. But I'm not qualified to be a therapist. I just can be a better friend now, I think. I think that's like anything. I, like I always end up like just trying to monetize things that I enjoy. <laughs> Like, like music yeah, and, you know, playing a few songs and then going like, yeah, I should probably be getting paid for this. Like <laughs> I've listened to a lot of music. I'm qualified to, to, to make a living off this now. But yeah. That's, that is a part of value though as well, like self-value and like you're only, as a musician, you're only worth as much as someone's willing to pay you or, or you're only as good as your last gig, which is something that the Wolf Brothers said. And it's like, yeah, they're like... One of my gigs, I did 800 people and I got paid really well. But then two weeks later, I'm being paid 350 bucks. To oh, well, now you suck. Do you know what I mean? It's like, uh, <laughs> it's also what you have to say yes and no to. And there's only so much you can say no to. I think there's a lot of showbiz quotes like that that <laughs> I take issue with. <laughs> kind of like some old school, very old school ways of thinking that, yeah, yeah it's nice to see younger people in the industry nowadays not blindly believing those things and enforcing their own paths. You've got to make the decision on what you can do and what you can't do. Yeah. And like it just happens that I'm a very slow learner and <laughs> instead of taking advice, I like to go, well, I'll see for myself after experiencing this the hard way yeah. several times. So, yeah. <laughs> That's good. Sorry. So we're plugging. Well, I was going to say, so there will be in the description of this podcast and on the website, there will be all the information about you and people can go find you. But what are they going to be looking for? Tell us what's coming out, what shows you got coming up. So you want to go to... Why should people contact you? JimmyWatts.com where I... I guess I didn't really even get into this too much, so I'll try and abbreviate it. So the last few years, my show has become more of a bluesy musical comedy slash something. I don't know. It's it's my terrible attempt at satire because (laughs) I I just found... Like like I said, I've become very cynical. Performing earnestly, writing earnestly mm-hmm. just hasn't hasn't been on the cards <laughs> recently. And I watched a show called Doomsday Preppers, which you might have seen, which is a couple of years old now, but it sort of followed all these people who were preparing for the, the, an apocalypse of some sort and yeah. they all had different – some of them were preparing for, you know, the medical pandemic. Some of them were preparing for nuclear war. Some of them – you know, they all had different things they were preparing for. Yeah, but they were all relevant. they were all prepping, uh-huh. and a lot of them, like one of them, had like a a house full of you know food, tinned food and rice, and he was never more than like a meter away from a gun within his house, <laughs> and all these hidden panels wow. in the wall, and they're all doing like That's anyway. Intense. 
Okay. I thought it was amazing and hilarious <laughs> and it's quite easy to take the piss out of that sort of stuff. But I think... Imagine living like that though, seriously. Oh. Yeah. And then, you know, for all of, for like, you know, the last few years of, of COVID for there to be some level of of things that they were preparing for to come to fruition would have been extremely validating, I guess. Oh, they would have loved it. They'd be like, yeah. ha, told you so. <laughs> So yeah, like you told me I was crazy. <laughs> at the start of twenty in February twenty twenty, yeah. I was I filmed a big show of this sort of as this character, this sort of doomsday prepper character, and the whole <laughs> idea is that it's kind of taking the piss out of the MAGA right wing gun toting doomsday prepper and taking his very you know right wing extreme views and sort of showing how they compare to, which is also, you know, somewhat my experience growing up in the right-wing cult and comparing them to my other experience in my 20s of like the extreme left of being a crazy hippie, hippie dippy person and like both of these extremes really circle back to each other and are so similar in their like anti-authoritarian beliefs, their distrust of government, this distrust of science, this, you know, just doubling down on on beliefs that have no basis in reality. They're both just sort of left feeling insanely disenfranchised. And anyway, so I just found that really interesting how there were so many similarities between yeah. those two extremes. And so, yeah, I've been trying to write this, or well, I've been writing this show about about that crossover. It's you know, it's quite easy to write because there's just an endless dearth of insanity. I feel like there is, yeah. And, and also so much her. inspiration to draw on. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so a lot of you know, a lot of this character that I sort of perform as is is focused around like stockpiling beans and, and pornography to live in this <laughs> you know doomsday Wait, bunker. Stockpiling pornography. Well, I mean, when the, in, an, in an age of no internet, you kind of go back to analog. That's hilarious. Okay. Yeah, so that's that's what I've been writing. That's the show. So I'm trialing this show and it has a lot of video elements which sort of came about really because I was, it was just performing with a drummer and I do a lot of like weird tunings yeah. which takes time in between songs. So I started putting like some like funny little one-minute, two-minute videos to to play while I'm sort of changing a t- guitar or retuning. But they sort of like tie the show together a lot. A lot of the storytelling's in that because a lot of my storytelling while I'm mumbling and shouting and singing is hard to follow. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, it's kind of – it's a very fun, weird, piss-take sort of – yeah, I call it apocalyptic blues rock. So July the 1st is Ooh, in – New financial year. <laughs> yep, yep. That's a Friday. Fresh, fresh right off. <laughs> uh, Friday night at a Gimpy or near Gimpy oh, in cool. Wolver at Head Shed. And I guess if you are if you live in that region, you know Gary has this paddock with a massive shed that he's built a stage in and he cool. has these insanely big parties where... I've never been to Gimpy or played in Gimpy, but I want to. Well, you should play at Head Shed. Yeah, it's amazing. And like all these locals come and just camp in his paddock. He puts on, uh, he does like all these... Baked potatoes, you, yeah, get, yeah. you get a baked spud and a concert and you stand around the fire <laughs> and dance in the shed. So, so that's on July 1st. Yep. I think that's maybe 30 bucks and that's with the, the Urban Chiefs from Tamworth who are coming up who are a sort of blues rock psych sort of duo who have been 
similarly touring around for, for years and years. And then we're both heading to Toowoomba on July 2nd at uh, Bodega Bar and that's for a, a mini festival day that's got five bands, I think. Chiefs, my band, Pop Standen, who's, you know, a well-known blues rocker in the Australian scene and Halfway Homeboy, and I'm probably missing some others, but... Okay. It's quite a few acts. Should be a really good day. That's run by Como, Como Egan, who's well known in the Australian blues rock scene as a character and all round legend. So cool. So yeah, th- those are the two dates where we're sort of just trialing this show. I've got. I got, love blues, by the way. I'm kind of getting over it. It's been really? a long time. <laughs> so the, yeah, so we're trialing those two shows, and then later in the year, October, November, we we'll be doing some proper theatre shows around the place. Yeah, so. I think both of those shows should be a lot of fun. Got a band this time with Todd Orchard on drums, who's a well-known sort of session player, sort of yep. always playing in five or six bands at a time. And cool. Flickertree on cello, electric cello, which will be cool. Um, so I used to, my old bass player Mike used to play like a baritone guitar on his bass. And, but yeah, he, he can't do these shows. So That's got right. some crazy cello sounds, which will be awesome. That's good that you can get someone in. Yeah. Awesome. So, yeah, that, uh, that's all my plugs. All right. That was, that was Sweet. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. Well, hopefully if you can get to any of those gigs, go to the gigs. Thank you very much for jumping on. Is there anything else you would like to say before we finish up? You can go to jimmywatts.com, J-I-W-M-Y-W-A-T-T-S.com. You can join my doomsday cult there, which is <laughs> the mailing list. Knowing how to run a cult, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, I've got quite a – there's a bit of merch for sale. Uh, Put all those links in the description yeah. and on the website so people can get to it and just one click away. Awesome. One click away from my, yeah, I've got a great shirt for sale, which says only has beans, don't have beans, which is a reference to my apocalyptic bunker (laughs) full of beans and porn. Awesome. Um, I've also named my cat beans. Is it like baked beans? Yes. Yeah, I love baked beans. All right, brilliant. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining our songwriter Tris today. To join the family and keep up to date with future podcasts, you can follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram and Twitter. Please leave a review and subscribe. To support the podcast or contact me or our guest, please go to the website, songwritertrists.com. No one can